So this morning we're thinking about what it means to be a church that nourishes spiritual seekers. And we're hedging our bets on this idea that around us, in our neighbourhoods, in our workplaces, in our schools, um, in our families even, there are people who are spiritual searchers. Um, Perhaps they're trying to fill an emptiness in their life. There's an emptiness created by a lack of purpose in life. Maybe some suffering that they've experienced. Um, Perhaps life is going really well, but, but despite all of that, yet they still want to find something more. Um, and to fill this hole, they try, try all sorts of things. So they go to the gym, and I go to the gym, and I see uh, myself to, to a point, and also others around uh, me trying to just, not just work out, but also, I don't know, reach out for something. Um, just putting your body through all that pain. Um, Maybe they uh, meditate, maybe they do yoga, maybe they try different philosophies or spiritualities or books um, or the arts. They read um, all kinds of um, literature. They might devote themselves completely to a sport uh, like cycling or doing a marathon and it's just like, it's partly for the sport but it's also partly just to find a purpose. Um... There is a, you know, when you do sport, um, there's a rush of endorphins and it's an addictive thing, but I, I think um, it can also become like a religion. And you might know people who are like that with, with their sport. And I've got people who are like this with the arts as well. They, they're not just interested in music or poetry or paintings or whatever, but they're actually trying to feel something. They're, they become, it becomes an obsession. They consume music and film and literature and theatre, because it gives them a sense of meaning, perhaps like what we saw in the film Birdman, to a point. But at the end of the day, the Bible is clear that while sport and the arts all have their own value, nothing can properly fill that spiritual void in our soul apart from the Spirit of God. When we talk about wanting to be a church that nourishes spiritual seekers, we're talking about, first of all, being nourished ourselves. And I think we identify when we started Mary Creek, that would be our first challenge. Our first challenge would be, how do we nourish ourselves, especially when there are so many people that we know, Christians, who might have experienced, I don't know, burnout in a church or disappointment in church experiences, and then they come to a church plant to start again, um, but really maybe they're still carrying burden with them and they're feeling dry, they're not feeling nourished. How can um, a community of people who many who might be in that situation then go on and nourish other people? That's a challenge for us. Well, as we talk through the story of Jesus meeting the Samaritan woman at the well, I want to make seven observations about Jesus and how he relates to spiritual seekers. Um, and I hope from this we'll get a greater sense of our mission to the inner north and, and a greater sense of what it means for ourselves to be spiritually nourished. And while the observations are about Jesus, there are actually really four perspectives in this story that you might flip through as we talk, talk about it. There's the perspective of Jesus, who is, I guess, the main character. And then there's the woman, who's the other second, the leading actress. <laughs> and then there's the disciples, who are standing on the edge and observing, and not saying too much. And then also there's, um, there's the... The Samaritans, who, 
who actually become Christians who weren't in the reading, but if you keep reading through John 4, you get to see um, the response of the Samaritans. So, um, and I will reference that. So here's the seven observations about Jesus and his relationship with spiritual seekers. First of all, Jesus was a man on a mission. We see Jesus as a missionary going to work. He'd been at the wedding at Cana. He talked to um, the religious man Nicodemus and challenged him. He'd, he'd unleashed his disciples to baptise people in Judea. And now he'd left that behind and was going with them to Galilee. And um, this long walk was perhaps a time for him to have a bit of a break, a bit of a pray and just some time out and, and go where the Spirit led him. And unlike most pious Jews, who would never walk through Samaria because they're the unclean people, they're the, the people who aren't um, following the, the true Jewish law, they do their own breakaway religion. Instead, Jesus walks right on through Samaria comfortably. The Apostle John has made it clear to us at the start of the Gospel that Jesus was the Son of God who, while he was truly divine, he had taken on a second nature, that nature being human flesh. He was fully God and fully human. And he had done this to bridge that gulf between God and people and bring salvation. This, the technical word for this is incarnation. You've heard me talk about it before. But the trajectory of this incarnation wasn't just to be born, but it kind of continues into the, the depths of humanity. It keeps going right to the edges of society. Jesus would talk to anyone who he came across. His incarnation meant that he experienced all the same sensations that we experience. So as we see in verse 6, he was tired from the journey. It was noon and presumably hot, so he would have been sweaty. And so he went to Jacob's well because he was thirsty, it all says there. But he was willing to step down from heaven, Jesus, experience all of his hot and sweaty life and tiredness so that he could bring salvation to the world. He was a man on a mission. And then we see this man on a mission make the first move in the conversation uh, the culturally risky move of speaking to this lone Samaritan woman with a simple question, will you give me a drink? In verse 7. So let's get the inspiration from Jesus to see the lengths he went to be on mission. He lowered himself and faithfully propelled himself to reach the people he needed to reach. If we're going to have a mission to the spiritual seekers, we need to expect also to get hot and sweaty and tired. We worship a Jesus who became flesh. Let us to be a church that becomes flesh for the people around us that steps out of our comfort zone. Let us be a people who make the first move and start a conversation. I enjoy telling the shop workers around the office of Mary Creek office that I'm an Anglican minister. I just love saying it because it's just the most amazing reactions all the time. That's my first move often. It's an easy one for me. And we get into all kinds of spiritual conversations. Jesus was a man on a mission. Let's be people on a mission. The second observation is that Jesus can break through any cultural barriers. Now, who was this woman that Jesus was talking to? The passage makes it clear that on three levels, she was on the fringe of her, her, this intercultural relationship. First of all, she's from the breakaway religious group called the Samaritans. They were looked down upon the, by the Jews for their alternative theology. And she said it herself in verse 9. You're a Jew... And I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Secondly, she's a woman on her own. And Jewish men wouldn't normally go to a woman on her own at 12 o'clock in the middle of the day and talk to, talk to her unless they're looking for sex. 
which Jesus clearly wasn't doing. Thirdly, the fact that she was on her own in the middle of the day and not going to the well at the start of the day meant she was probably rejected by her own community. And so she had to go at a time when nobody else was there, at the most inconvenient time of the day, the hottest time of the day. And we find out later, in verses 16 to 18, why she would have been marginalised in her own community because of her sexual sin. She'd had five husbands and the bloke she was living with now wasn't even her husband. We, we remember that conversation. So her, her own cultural community had pushed her away. She had lots of relationships, but she was ultimately a lonely person. But Jesus initiated the breaking through of all three of these cultural barriers. As easy as he walked down the road from Judea to Galilee, through Samaria, so too did, his walk, did he walk through these cultural barriers into her personal space. He wasn't phased by these cultural expectations. He wasn't repelled by her sexual sin. For Jesus is the divine doctor who's looking for someone sick to heal. When we look at the various people in our world that are seeking for something more, many of us are often discouraged to introduce them to Jesus because we think they would never be interested. Or they wouldn't listen to me because I'm different to them. Or they might laugh at me. Or it would be offensive to their culture. You might hear people say that all the time. We're trying to be sensitive so we don't talk about Jesus. But we need to have confidence that the gospel can work anywhere. It works in China. It works in Armenia. It works in South Africa. It works for the rich. It works for poor. It works for famous people and and people who aren't famous. Men and women. It might not always be obvious who these... um, spiritual seekers are, but no matter what background they're from, we need to have confidence that that the gospel is powerful. You know, we might, when we think of the phrase spiritual seekers, we might think of of an archetype. We might think um, the hippie who drinks chai, you know, and listens to Enya. But um, no... The spiritual seeker might be your mechanic. It might be your accountant. It could be the homeless guy sitting on the street, you know, in the city, outside your office. It could be the colleague sitting next to you. Anybody, no matter how culturally different to you they might seem, might just be the spiritual seeker who is hungry for God. The third observation I made about this, um, Jesus relating to the spiritual seekers, is that Jesus offers complete spiritual nourishment. So she was a bit baffled that he even spoke to her and his response was straight to the point. Verse 10, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And this conversation develops about water. And we soon soon learn that she's talking about H2O and he's talking about the Holy Spirit. Jesus is using water as a metaphor, a spiritual metaphor. Where do you get this living water, she says. To which Jesus says in verse 14, "Um, If you drink the water I'm offering, you'll never be thirsty again. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the living water. So how does the Holy Spirit nourish us? It seems there is a way the Spirit nourishes now, but also in the future. Right. And Jesus makes his point. The spirit, spirit nourishes now because 
His presence in our life, God's Holy Spirit presence in our life, means that we don't have to live in despair anymore. The despair of our sin, the despair of a meaningless life like Michael Keaton's character in Birdman, the despair of um, a lack of purpose. Um, That burden is lifted from us and put onto Jesus. The Spirit nourishes us by giving us direct access to God so we can pray directly to God. The Spirit grows the fruit of godly character in our life. Joy, patience, peace, self-control, kindness and love. But we should not imagine that this living water that Jesus gives us offers us full victory in this life. In fact, the Spirit, what he's doing is he's holding us in tension between despair at one end and triumph and victory at the other end. If you've lived your life as a Christian, you know that you still experience suffering. You still experience disappointment because we're not yet in heaven. We have not yet experienced that eternal life that Jesus is talking about in verse 14. Nor should we, if we have the Spirit in our lives, experience the despair that the woman at the well would have been experiencing. So this is why she spoke out and said, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. There is no substitute for the Spirit of God. If we want to be a church that nourishes spiritual seekers, we need to draw our nourishment from God, and that is what we should be offering others. So Jesus was a man on a mission. Jesus can break through any cultural barrier. Jesus offers complete spiritual nourishment. And fourthly, Jesus calls people to a new life. In verse 16 and 18, the conversation moves from living water to sex. Hello. Um, Go call your husband and come back, says Jesus, confronting her with her own pain. He knows that this is why she's been marginalised, because he's got prophetic insight. I have no husband, she says. And Jesus says, I know, in fact, you've gone from one to the other, and and the other fella and the bloke you're with now, he's not even your husband. He knows. One commentator um, put it this way. She was clinging rather pathetically to her privacy and some semblance of respectability using a not very clear equivocation which Christ dramatically exposes to reveal a life which is not so much immoral, although it is that, as a complete mess. A broken series of false beginnings and shattered hopes. In verse 20, she tried to change the subject and talk about true worship. Let's talk about worship. Let's not talk about my sex life. But Jesus wouldn't let her. She couldn't distract him. Now, whether it was five husbands or just five men, we can't really know for sure from the Greek. Um, Some say what Jesus is saying, you've been sleeping with about five blokes and now you're sleeping with another bloke and he's not the man. And uh, Jesus is having a pub pub conversation with this woman. (laughs) By the way, she had a big, deep, dark secret. And now he was out in the open and she probably felt a bit better for it, even though she was emotionally scarred. Maybe she now feels a bit of a sense of liberation. If you've ever experienced being exposed for your sin, it's deeply humiliating and also a relief to get it out. Anyone who's done ministry with young adults will know that there is a tactic that you soon learn as a young adult minister, uh, which you keep up your sleeve, which you rarely use, only when it's absolutely appropriate. 
for when a young adult comes to you and says, who's been a Christian for a long time, says, starts questioning theology and says, I'm just not sure about the resurrection anymore. I'm not, I'm not sure about that Jesus is the only way. I'm not sure that um, this church is for me anymore. And, and I'm not sure that um, about really if there's such thing as sin. Is there really such thing? And, and questions come up and then criticisms of the church come up. And the tactic that young, young adult ministers all know because they've been around Mulberry Bush enough times is that you can just come out with it and say, so who are you sleeping with? Because it's so often... I've, I've never actually done it, but I've, I've, I've been in plenty of conversations which ends up there. Um... See, what happens is they experience a kind of cognitive dissonance. It's a kind of a psychological state. They, their own life doesn't match up with the, the life that they've been brought up, or the faith that they've been brought up in. So they have to change their faith to match up with their new lifestyle. When you're doing something that you're raised to believe is wrong, but then you're doing this new thing, it's pretty fun and exciting, but it's also dangerous, and it's also very kind of um, uh, you know, enslaving. You want to find reasons to disbelieve your old life, your old moral convictions. The thing is, um, for those people who find themselves in that cognitive dissonance, that, that, that strain of life and faith not matching up, Jesus wants to expose it, but also offer forgiveness and healing. He wants to offer a relationship with him. He wants to offer the living water of the Holy Spirit. But for us to have this, we have to surrender ourselves to him. And this includes surrendering our sex lives to a life of obedience to God. This, this includes surrendering, surrendering our sex life to a life of exclusive sex inside marriage. And this is what Jesus was wanting from the woman at the well. Spiritual seekers, on the other hand, often want a product to fill that void. They want a book. They want a retreat or a festival. But you can't consume the living water like it's a, in a bottle and it's going bad. It's not a yoga class. You need to engage with God on his terms. And this includes facing up to your shame and asking Jesus for forgiveness. And let me promise you that no sin is too big for Jesus to forgive. No shame is too dirty for Jesus to heal. In 1 John 3 verse 1 it says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. With Jesus, you can stop judging yourself and allowing others to judge you. With Jesus, you can stop fearing being exposed as a moral failure. With Jesus, you can stop feeling not good enough. With Jesus, you don't need to feel shame anymore. You don't need to numb your psychological pain. Or you don't need to blame others for your hurts because you know deep inside that God approves of you and loves you as his child. If you're a Christian who for a long time has not felt nourished, has not felt that thirst for more being quenched, like Jesus is promising, then maybe you need to reflect on your own life and ask yourself, maybe there's unconfessed stuff, that, unconfessed sin that needs to get out. Perhaps you have some idols that are getting in the way between you and Jesus. Perhaps instead of drawing your strength from the living water, you're drawing your strength from another place. Jesus called the woman at the world to a new life, and he's calling us to a new life. And he's calling the inner north anywhere. Fifthly, Jesus offers his perfect relationship. Now, I want to acknowledge this point from Scott Buchanan. 
who's actually writing a book on the Gospel of John. Woo! So there you go. I'm preaching on John. He's writing a book on John. You should just listen to him. But I had a chat with Scott, and he gave me some interesting insights. And here's a great one. From Scott's research, he's made um, an observation that goes like this. Back in chapter 2, we see Jesus at a wedding, and he provides the wine when the wine runs out, which is actually the job of the bridegroom, isn't it? It was in. It was uh, then at the end of chapter three. I'll just move forward. And then at the end of chapter three in John, John the Baptist, talking about the superiority of Jesus, says, "The bride belongs to the bridegroom." And and John the Baptist is sort of saying, "I'm the best man. I'm not really the bridegroom. You know, Israel's the bride, and and this guy Jesus, he is the true bridegroom." This theme of Jesus the bridegroom and the church being the bride goes through all of the New Testament. In fact, it starts in the Old Testament, um, uh, where Israel is the bride, and comes to a grand conclusion at the heavenly wedding reception in Revelation 19. Now, Scott pointed out to me that the woman at the well is no longer with her five husbands, but now she has met her true husband in Jesus, the true bridegroom. He's the heavenly bridegroom who offers her a relationship that transcends any kind of marital, sexual, or um, personal relationship because they end once you get to heaven. Whereas your relationship with Jesus, the true bridegroom, goes on for eternity. And the even bigger point to take away is this. Christianity is ultimately a relationship with Jesus. That's where you find the living water that wells up into eternal life. This is what we need to be offering the spiritual seekers of the inner north. Not just a nice, warm experience of community, not just a gig at the pub with the Mary Creek Gospel explosion playing on a Sunday afternoon with a few, you know, um, you know, shandies, whatever's your drink of choice. Not just a warm, fuzzy feeling, but a relationship with the true bridegroom, Jesus. Jesus was a man on a mission. Jesus can break through any cultural barrier. Jesus offers complete spiritual nourishment. Jesus calls people to a new life. Jesus offers his perfect relationship. And sixth, Jesus is better than all other spiritual gurus. If you look back in chapter 3, when Jesus talked to the religious leader Nicodemus in the darkness of night time, you see that the conversation was also in the dark. The further they talk, Nicodemus gets more and more confused. He walks away from the truth. But with the woman at the well, the outcasts from another religious group and cultural group, they met in the middle of the day, in the light. And it's no coincidence that Jesus is also the light that has come into the darkness. In her case, her conversation was in the light as well. The more she talked, the closer she got to the truth. We see Jesus hanging out at the geographically holy site of Jacob's well. But the apostle writer is saying, who cares about the holy site of Jacob's well because we've got the Son of God here. And in verse 12, the woman says, are you greater than our patriarch Jacob? To which Jesus says nothing. But we know, of course, he is. Then in verse 19, she gets a bit closer to the truth. After the chat about her sex life and it's all exposed, she says, I can see that you're a bit of a prophet. Well, yes, he is a prophet. Uh, he is, in fact, the last of God's prophets. He is the fulfilment of all prophecy. He's the one in whom all the lines of prophecy meet. 
He is a prophet and he's a priest and he's also a king. Then in verse 25, she reveals she knows about this bloke called Jesus the Messiah who is coming and will explain everything. And Jesus revealed to her that, she, that he is him. Spiritual seekers are often way closer to the truth than they realise. I can remember once uh, sitting in my laundry room when we lived in Hawthorne um, and we've got a friend um, who um, was an old colleague of Joe's who's you know, very Melbourne Jewish. You know, she like, hangs out with John Safran. That's how Jewish she is. And um, you know, she's you know, long dark hair and really, you know, um, anyway, wealthy and all that. Does, does Sabbath, but that's about it. But she was having relationship troubles and we were sitting in the lounge room and she goes, Peter, I need a priest. Right? And it was a cry for help. But also closer to the truth than she realised. She didn't need me for a Catholic priest. What she really needed was the true high priest who knows what it's like to suffer and be tempted in every way. Jesus Christ. She needed Jesus because he's better than all the other spiritual gurus and he's better than all the patriarchs combined, including Jacob, and he's better than all the prophets. So Jesus was a man on a mission. Jesus can break through any cultural barrier. Jesus offers complete spiritual nourishment. Jesus calls people to a new life. Jesus offers his perfect relationship. Jesus is better than all other spiritual gurus. And lastly, Jesus prompts us to mission. If you read to the end of this story, which we didn't read, but in verse 27 to 42, you'll see that at no point does she actually fully confess to faith in Jesus. She still maintains that he was some kind of a prophet, but she got pretty close. She was saying to her friends back in Samaria, could this be the Messiah? She says in verse 29. At least she thought he was special and she started acting like a disciple. She went back to her village, the people that had rejected her, and she started witnessing to this man who understood me and said amazing prophetic insight into my life. And surprisingly, her message was so powerful. The gospel, which breaks through all cultural barriers, broke through so that many of the local Samaritans came to believe in Jesus. They listened to her and believed her. So in a sense, the living water, which is already having an impact on her life, in her half-formed faith, is causing a change on her human relationships and even a change to the whole community. Jesus earlier had said, go get your husband, and she never actually did that. But she did go and get the whole village to come. And so Jesus stayed with them for two days in their village, it says in verse 41, and many more became believers. I read a great, great quote from Tim Keller, who I love to quote. He says, The woman at the well knew so little about the truth of God compared to you and me, and yet she was so faithful. What's wrong with you and me? <laughs> Good point. The overall mission statement for our church is cultivating a life in our neighbourhood. And this story from John 4 is about a spiritual seeker who ended up doing that. She cultivated life in her neighbourhood with the living water. The message that she brought back to her own community brought change to her whole community. They came back to her and said in verse 42, we don't now believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the saviour of the world. If we want to see the inner north transformed, we need to offer them the living water, which is life in the spirit of God that comes from a relationship with Jesus. Let's pray that that can happen. Jesus is offering you this living water, and he's also prompting you to run out and tell everyone in the village. Because we're all spiritual seekers. 
But let's not go to Jacob's well for it, but just Jesus' well for our living water. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the man on a mission. You can break through any cultural barrier. You can offer complete spiritual nourishment. You call people to a new life. You offer a perfect relationship. You're better than all other spiritual gurus. And now you're also prompting us to mission. We thank you for the inspiration that we get from this woman um, from Samaria and for the insights that you gave her and the change that you created in her. We don't know what happened years later, but we trust that your spirit was at work. And we pray that as a community that we can have uh, a similar, if not greater, impact on our um, neighbourhood and on our friends and our work colleagues and people at uni and wherever we mix. And pray that um, we will be overflowing with this with this uh, living water, that we won't be dry. And if pray if there's unconfessed sin that we need to get out in the open, that we can find someone and talk to them about it. Pray that you give us the courage to do that. Um, knowing that you love us and that you offer your, your forgiveness and that you actually seek us out and want to bring tra- transformation. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.